Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. So I've talked enough. (laughs) Let's get to our subject today. The Bloody Benders, as they are known in popular mythology, a family of serial killers from the early 1870s and operators of a frontier murder hotel. This is our subject today. My guest is Phyllis De La Garza, an author of more than 15 books in the Western genre. She's the author of Death for Dinner, The Benders of Old Kansas, a biography of a family of mass killers. Ms. De La Garza, glad to have you here with me today. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So in October of 1870, a wagon arrives at an old Indian post in southeastern Kansas. Two men get off the wagon, walk into the Indian post, and start asking about land. Who were they? Okay, well, there was Pa Bender, uh, also known as John, and the, the younger Bender that he introduced as his son, John Jr. Uh, people referred to them always as John Bender when they were talking about the, the son, and they referred to the father as Pa Bender always. So um, they arrived, and it was cold and windy in October, and, and in those days people were proving up on land that was the home, homestead land, but he had to live on it for a certain amount of time and so on. And they were looking around to see what was available, and they stopped at an old trading post for information, and that's how it began. They They spent that winter. They found a piece of land and spent the winter... Um, just working around there on someone else's property, but that man returned, and then they finally got a piece of land of their own. But it was uh, quite a a desolate area west of Cherryvale, Kansas. They were down in the southeastern corner of the state. And when you, when we think about it later, they had this very well planned. Uh, Kansas in those days 
the southern border of the state uh, bordered what was known in those days as Indian Territory, which is now the state of Oklahoma. But Oklahoma was not a state yet. So anyone who crossed that border was into very wild territory where there was no law enforcement as, as such. So the Benders, I think, planned that. Uh, their, their inn was about you know, 17 miles or something like that uh, from, from that border, not that far away. Uh, they and they worked on their shack. They built a one-room shack, and then in the summer, they uh, went somewhere. No one knows. The family was quite reclusive for obvious reasons, and they came back shortly thereafter with Ma and Katie Bender, the women, and they had some supplies for the house. Would you tell us their approximate ages and what they looked like? Uh, pa and Ma Bender were reported to be probably in their 60s. And the son, John Jr., was in his middle 20s, and Katie was in her early 20s. And the neighbors remembered later that Katie really did not resemble the the other members of the family. Her hair was somewhat reddish, and she was very talkative and vivacious, and she was... Uh, someone who you know would, would do the talking. The other Ben, Ma Bender. No one ever remembered having a conversation with Ma Bender. She pretended not to speak English. They were German, the the, the Bender family, and and Pa spoke a broken English, and 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 they did not circulate with neighbors much any more than they had to. So the man that they first met when they arrived at the Indian Post, his name was Brockman. He happened to speak German, so they were on fairly friendly terms with him. And he helped them out, didn't he? Yes, yes. He he spoke German. And in fact, Brockman, in time, was reported to have somewhat of a crush on Katie. He tried to date her, and and they, you know, he he was interested in her. But um, uh, Katie was... <laughs> I'm hesitating. I want to give the story away, but the fam- they were known as the Bender family. But uh, as it has turned out, uh, Katie was married to John. She was a wife. She was not the sister. And, and, and for years and years, people suspected something there because of she looked so different than the rest of the family. She behaved differently. And, and the neighbors must have noticed something because they'd see the two of them out you know, in the buggy together, riding with the or with the horses, and and there was a, a rumored around that there was an incestuous relationship between those two. Well, it, it has turned out that that Katie was his wife, posing as his sister. Interesting. So they began building a house. It's basically a one-room shack, divided down the middle by a piece of canvas. From a wagon. Yep, the wagon sheet, the canvas wagon sheet. They hung that up from the from the rafter, and and Ma did the cooking behind the sheet. That was their kitchen, and then in the in the other side of the sheet, they had sawhorses and a table, and people that were coming through. It was the Bender Inn, and people coming along the road that were traveling west would stop and maybe have something to eat or they'd rest for the night or they'd get some information. It was uh, uh, a stopping place, stopping off place. 
But the interesting part of the house was a large stone slab set as a floor in the basement. Without giving too much away yet, <laughs> how was that constructed? Well, they, they apparently they dug this pit under the house before the men built the house, and then they put in the floor and they had a trap door and the kitchen behind the well this is just the one room shack so the trap door is right behind where a person would be sitting at the table they would have a person sit you know in front of the wagon sheet at the table and ma would be behind the sheet in the kitchen and the trap door was built or behind the place where a person would sit while they were eating at the table and and so go on were you going to ask <laughs> oh yes um the stone slab in the basement was highly unusual for a frontier shack in the 1870s. And this stone floor was actually raised a few inches off the ground, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. And that, that it turned out, well, you want me to get ahead of the story? <laughs> uh, no, no, let, let's wait. Okay, we'll get to the stone slabs. But the house was designed, you know, with this special uh, intent, I believe, and in a place where there were no close neighbors now, no, you know, no one was living in, in close by where they could see what was going on over at the Bender place. And, and as I said earlier, they were a few miles away from Indian territory, which is, as it turned out in time, where John apparently took the things that they stole and was able to get them across the border, uh, away from, you know, any locals and local law enforcement. That's a great segue here. I was going to ask you about Jim and Kate. While Ma and Pa stayed mostly at home, Jim was away from home a lot, and neighbors just assumed he was out getting supplies and, and dealing with their livestock. Yes, yes. Uh, they were they were dealing in a few cows, and they had they had a little farm there, you know. Uh, and people wondered. The neighbors wondered though why they didn't really plant anything. Ma had an apple, a few apple tree sprigs, uh, little trees out in the behind the house. There was like a, a little orchard that they. You have to understand that this is 1870s where they began all this, and in 1872 is when the whole thing came apart. So they really only were there a couple of years all together, and. And they didn't plant anything. They didn't have any crops. They were doing some buying and selling of a few animals. They had horses coming and going, as people did in those days. But they didn't have any real, real close neighbors that were really watching them, you know. Uh, and so um, they got away with this. I think they were very, very sly. They, In time, shortly thereafter, they moved in. Some people started to disappear and by that, they, these were travelers coming through. No one that lived in Cherryvale. No, no one that was very, very close by now. And friends and relatives of some of these people were beginning to, you know, look for their, wonder what happened to their relatives. You know, like my husband was going from Cherryvale to Parsons and, and he, and he didn't, he didn't get there. He did and, and so people were beginning to look around for some missing travelers. Yes. But before we jump too far ahead, a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. First, let's let's talk a little bit more about Kate. She's by far the most intriguing of the family members. She's vivacious, as you say, curvaceous, very pretty and outgoing. And she really tries to ingratiate herself into the community, doesn't she? Yes. 
And I, and I think this was not only part of her personality, but she was finding things out. You know, she was the one who would uh, um, keep in touch with what was happening, who was saying what, and and I I believe that her pretending to be the daughter in the house was for two two reasons. One was as a daughter, she would be more freely able to talk with most of these travelers were men coming you know they were they were heading west and and so she would be able to talk to them and and she was flirtatious it was said and i think this was probably in an effort to find out where are you going how much money are you carrying Oh, you know, and the men would be apt to maybe brag and say, "Oh, they were looking for some land, and they had two thousand dollars." And this, and people carried money with them. They, they, you know, this is a day before credit cards. <laughs> so, uh, Katie was the one who would find out what, who was what, who they were, if they were local, and if they were carrying any money. And she was a, a spiritualist as well. Yes, she claimed to be, and she went around giving these. Uh, um, Oh, like seances. They, and they did some seances at the house. They had some people that did from the area. A few people would come and they'd get together and they'd do this, what they call table tipping. I'm not exactly sure. I, it was, I know about Ouija boards and things like that. And they had some sort of mysterious stuff that, that she, that Katie was involved in. And, uh, uh, here again, uh, there were some, some locals who, who got mixed up in that and wound up uh, Katie said that she could cure various ailments, and, and then she'd have them pay her, of course, you know, or give them something, uh, give them, have them give something to her in exchange for her uh, so-called spiritual help or or whatever. In fact, she had a a um, a flyer that was that went around the county, and it said it, it said here it was Professor Miss Katie Bender, she called herself. And uh, the flyer said that she could heal all sorts of diseases, and, and including blindness, fits, deafness, and and things like that. You see, uh, she she was not like a, uh, a minister. Uh, she was claiming to cure diseases, and and it had here her residence. She had that east of 14 miles east of Independence, on the road from Independence to Osage Mission. It was June June of 1872 is when she did uh, this this poster, uh, this flyer that was uh, distributed. What was the general impression people had of the Bender family? The neighbors were suspicious of them because the Benders never really made an effort to become friendly with anyone for obvious reasons. They didn't want anyone to come snooping around, and they discouraged that. And they didn't want anyone to know about them. However, Katie did go off uh, sometimes and uh, do a little visiting. And she she was a big talker. She was known as a big talker. So she, as much as she helped the family, she was probably someone they had to watch out for because she would be apt to give out some information, which later... Which later I came across some things in my research that that uh, pointed to her being the wife uh, rather than the sister. The Bender Inn was a grocery as well. Another reason for travelers to stop by. They could buy candy, a tin of oysters, and tobacco, and a few things they advertised. 
to people who were traveling there. They had they had that little uh, like grocery items there. Um, when, when the when the bent, when it was discovered about what they were doing and when they you know all this new everything broke, then people came forward and said, "Oh, I spent the night there and this funny thing happened and you know one thing another." They, they came up with all the various things, but no one really put it together to to figure out who that they were really killers. It was hard to figure because this is a family. You know, you'd be traveling and you were alone and heading out someplace and you stopped at the inn and there's Ma and Pa and Katie and John and, and, and you were you were not apt to to think you were falling into some dreadful situation uh, because the family, they, you know, they were fairly friendly or Katie certainly was and, uh, and you know, they fooled people. They, they, these were con artists. They were murderers. They had, they knew what they were doing so they weren't going to be purposely frightening anybody any more than they had to. But you write in your book that people were occasionally frightened. There were accounts later on from people who had kept the stories to themselves about pretty close calls, encounters with the benders that really shook them up. One traveler remembered that the place smelled terrible, looked filthy, and the table was covered in, in a greasy dirt. And Kate was really friendly until the guest gave them information that didn't fit with, with the family plan. And then she'd turn hostile. One man reported Pa sitting in front of the door, muttering in German with a skull on his face and brandishing a hammer. <laughs> uh, a few of the guests, uh, perhaps more attuned to, to danger, were really unsettled by their visits. And, and of course, one of the strangest parts the guests were not allowed to choose where they sat, even though the other seats were empty. They were told that they had to sit in a specific spot, right? Yes, in, 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 right in front of the where the trap door would have been. And uh, uh, yes, and some of the people later on said, "Oh, the place smelled." But you know, you have to you have to remember this is it's hot, and the weather being what it is, summertime, and flies and they didn't have running water they didn't have any of the modern conveniences or probably uh, the chemical things that we have now to clean up properly and so you know they were killing people and 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 dumping the body under under the under the house for the for the moment and that cement slab that they had was raised up it was up on a few inches up on some other smaller stones and that was apparently designed so that the, the poor the poor person who was who was killed and thrown down into the trap door they would bleed out and the and the blood went in underneath that stone and uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute or did you want to get into that we can talk about that now sure oh okay well their victim when they decide you know you have to understand they didn't kill everybody who came to the house they would choose a victim that they thought was alone that they knew was alone, that was traveling, that was not from that right, right from town there, that people would miss, you know, close by, and they were someone that they thought was carrying money, and then this is where Katie would have come in, I think, and be flirting maybe with a, you know, a man and find out if he if he had some money on him, so then they would put the have the person sit at the in the chair, the table. And Ma would be cooking up the whatever lunch or whatever, and then that's when Pa—I presume it would have been Pa. 
he, from behind the canvas sheet that was hanging there, the wagon sheet, he would hit the person over the head with a hammer. Uh, the hammers were found underneath the stove when, when later when all this came to a, you know, an end. There were, there were blacksmith hammers under the stove. And he would hit the poor victim over the head and then when the person being unconscious, he would, he would cut their throat and then they would drop the body down through this trap door under the house. And I, and I presume that was done quickly in an effort to be careful because there could have been some other travelers coming along the road and they would not have taken the person out and buried them in the daytime that would have been done at night so the the their victim would have been under the house for however long during the during daylight hours and uh and then at night they'd go in on you know they had a cellar door and they took the person out then, and that's when they raided the their clothing. They they took everything from these people: their boots, their clothes, uh, watches, uh, whatever. Of course, money. And I believe this is when John then, because these people were traveling on horseback, or they were in wagons or buggies. So John would have then taken that that horse and wagon buggy and gotten out of there and headed south to to a fence. You know, someone who would have bought. The loot in Indian territory there in Oklahoma, what is now Oklahoma. So John was not around that much. See, they didn't see, because that's what he was doing. He was taking the things that they stole to sell, and and uh, and then the, during the night the, the family would bury the person, and uh, and that was the, that was that. These were not spontaneous murders. They designed this house as a killing house. They planned to do this before they ever arrived in Kansas. Yes, yes. The location was perfect for what they had in mind. It was it was on the road right there on a on a on the road, you know, where people were traveling and yet the building was not close to any neighbors that could have seen what was going on. And then of course as I've already mentioned, they were close enough to Indian territory because they had to John had John had they had to get rid of the buggies and the horses and the equipment because, you know, neighbors noticed that in the old days everyone knew who had what horse and and they would have recognized uh all these things in the yard so and there wasn't a barn there there was simply a kind of a little shed that they they built where they had a cow and some of their own animals there was never a large barn that would be able to conceal any buggies or wagons or anything of any any size so we're going to get into the stories of some of the travelers who were murdered. But before we do that, I want to talk briefly about a man named Leroy Dick, because he plays an important role in this story, not just at the time the Benders were found out, but years later as well. So let's talk about who he was and also his relationship to one of the murder victims, Henry McKenzie. Let's talk about that, too. Well, Leroy Dick was a, uh, in those days they had like a county supervisor was his, was his, his role. He was, he was a nearby homesteader, he and his wife, and he was quite, uh, watchful, you know, but he, uh, he, he was always curious about what was going on, even though he couldn't see the benders and he didn't know right away that, you know, no one knew that these are the people who were responsible for missing travelers. But Leroy Dick was quite a, quite an interesting character and he, watched what was going on, and he uh, had that job as a county supervisor. 
and uh, Henry Mackenzie was his. Oh, let me think. That was his wife's uh, cousin, and Henry came through to visit one day, and and poor Henry had been in the Civil War. Oh, Leroy Dick was in the Civil War too. He had he'd been wounded a number of times. He was he was quite a uh, had quite a history, quite an interesting background himself. And uh, Leroy, uh, so Henry came walking up to their house one day to visit, and Henry was kind of a oh, free spirit. You know, he, he he I guess he didn't like work very much, but he was uh, one of those family members that you would see occasionally, and he talked and visited, and then he was on his way. He said he was going on to Parsons or some other village in the area, and he he left, and that was the last time Leroy Dick and his wife ever saw Henry. And the most distinctive thing about Henry Mackenzie, which probably led to his demise, was the way he dressed. Kind of a dandy, expensive clothes, clothes that made him look well-to-do, but as you already mentioned, he was kind of a tramp. He didn't like to work. He dressed far beyond his means. Yes, yes. Apparently, he had a fancy coat, some sort of a, some sort of a fancy kind of a fur coat of some kind, and and uh, new boots. And he was dressed nice. That's he was kind of a. Uh, uh, I don't know how you'd explain him, how you'd describe him exactly. He didn't work, but he, <laughs> but he, but he liked nice things, and so off he went. And apparently. The next place he stopped was at the Bender Inn, and he probably he must have intrigued Katie. You know, they they thought he was a a, a high roller of some kind, and uh, poor Henry had only a few pennies in his pocket as it, as it was, and um, he was one of the people that that turned up in Bender's apple orchard. A man named Earn, a former partner of Brockman. Uh, who was the man that initially helped the Mender family, uh, decided to get married, and he sent to Prussia for a wife. Can you talk about that story? Uh, yes, Brockman and Ern, Ern, they they split up. They got into some kind of a disagreement, and uh, and they they split up. And and Mister Ern was going to he wanted to get married, and he sent information back. Yes, back to Prussia. And his uh, the, the girl there that he knew and remembered, and her mother, they came right to America within as soon as he 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 sent for her to marry her. And but until they could get married, he had he put them up at the Bender Inn. And uh, it turns it's kind of a funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it is. It's a it's an odd thing that happened. And so the the women are there at the Bender Inn, and of course they they probably thought that was the worst possible outpost they could be stuck at in this shack with the benders. But the young lady's mother had a little jewelry box of some kind, and she had her treasures in there, a little bit of money and some things like that. They invited the, the women to go for a walk so they could, to get the women out of the house. And while the women were out walking with one of the benders, another one returned to the house apparently and opened up the little treasure box and stole the jewelry and the uh, and uh, the money that that this lady had with her, and in the morning, the uh, the next morning, I believe, when the lady, you know, they got back to the shack and she opened up her little treasure box and discovered it was empty, 
And of course, she went crazy because this was her money and her, you know, it was everything that she had and she was a long way from home. And she accused the vendors of, of it and of course, they, they refused to, to admit anything. And so it turned into a big fight. And, uh, Aaron came and he got his women out of the house. Oh, Katie said that she would call up the spirits and see what happened to the money. <laughs> that was one of her, one of her uh, favorite ploys. And, uh, anyway, the women got out of the house. They got out of there. And, oh, and they stopped. She, she had, even in those days, she had some sort of checks. And they were able to stop the payment on them. And I don't know how they, how that was done. I, anyway, the women got away. They were, they were not harmed. But the vendors really didn't care who they were stealing from as long as, as long as there was something interesting for them to wind up with. And I guess that it was only a funny story in that they only lost their jewelry and didn't lose their lives. Yes, yes. But that could be because I knew they were there. You know, I mean, they, they, they couldn't very well kill the two women without his, they, they were murdering people that had no close, uh, ties to anyone in the area. They were, they, or at least they, they, that, that was their downfall. They, they finally did the wrong thing. Oh, they did kill a terrible, terrible thing. A man, uh, who was traveling with his little daughter. And he was taking, it was in the snow, it was in the winter, and he was taking his little daughter. His wife had died. This was George Longcore. Yes, yes, long, long, yes, and I dedicated the book to the little girl. She was probably three years old, and he was traveling horse and wagon, stopped at the benders, it was, a, it was snowing, it was very cold in the winter, and he was taking the little girl back to her, her mother's relatives, uh, quite a, quite a far, quite a distance away, and, and he just never, he disappeared. And uh, his his horses and the wagon were found in the snow in a snowdrift somewhere. Uh, that got John. He tried to take the wagon and the horses, and he got he got caught in a snowstorm. And someone found the horses and the wagon tied to a fence in a snowdrift. He he didn't. John couldn't get out of the area because of the snow. And um, and, and later, eventually, Mr. Longcar and his little girl were two of the victims of the benders. They were found there, uh, buried behind the house. So the benders really, even killing a child was not was not uh, something that they wouldn't do. They were really terrible people. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. Out of all the, the Bender murder victims, there was one in particular, and his death would prove to be the tipping point. It was a man with connections, the kind of man that the Benders had tried hard to avoid killing in the past, Dr. William York. Yes, yes. Dr. York was a, a local physician and a man of, you know, highly thought of, and he disappeared. He went for a ride out a couple of days for riding, and I don't know what his business was, but he had a wife and two children and uh, in the area, and, and he went on this ride, and he never came back. Um, his brother was Colonel York, who had been a Union cavalry officer. And after the war, Colonel York got into politics, and he became Senator York. And when his brother went missing, Colonel York was not one to take that lightly. So he organized a posse, Colonel Alexander M. York. He organized a posse, and he started out from his brother's house, and he trailed. they trailed along and stopped everywhere to find out from the people if they had seen Dr. York. And as they traveled along their way, they did find some people said, oh, yes, he went by here, we saw him a couple of days, you know, like last week or whatever. And they even got to the Bender Inn 
because uh, oh, it was Leroy Dick, the one that you mentioned earlier. He he said to Colonel York, you know, there's uh, something funny going on around over there by the vendors. You might want to check on that and all that. So the posse rode into the vendor property, and uh, they were, you know, these were steely-eyed men who'd been through the war, and they were a no-nonsense group. And and Colonel York was not going to fool around with anybody. And he, I don't know what they may have seen in the house. They were suspicious. And one thing and another. Finally, they he left, but he but he told his men he was riding with. He said, well, you know, we're, this is a place we need to check out. And apparently, they frightened the benders enough so that that was what caused them to say, "We're out of here now." They had already killed uh, approximately eleven people, and and. You know, they must have realized that the time had come that they were on very thin ice now. And so they they got out of there in a hurry, and several days went by, and uh, neighbors noticed, the, the, the neighbors that that were within, you know, that used to ride by the property, noticed that the place looked very abandoned. Uh, no one was around, and the animals were, were crying. There was a cow and a pig and... These animals were hungry, and, and so the neighbors came in, and they got closer and closer, and they called, you know. And so this was the beginning of the uh, discovery of what was at the Bender Inn. And they also find the, the Bender's wagon abandoned with blood in the front seat. Yes, yes. As they started, as they extended the search now, so these people converged on the Bender property, and word circulated, and they, they had something like a thousand people showed up. They came in from all over Kansas. Once the word spread that bodies had been found at the Bender Farm, this this was a huge scandalous thing for people. And then you know in those days, and and they came in on buggies and horseback, and the posse, uh, uh, the locals led by Leroy Dick, and they dug up the backyard. And uh, started. They someone climbed up on a wagon, and they could see they could see an indentation on the ground that looked like a grave, where the ground had settled. So, and and also they'd gotten into the house, and they could see that the benders had left in a hurry. Things were just scattered all over, and but they had this most terrible, horrible smell that was coming from underneath, you know, the house. And so they they moved the house. They were able to get poles. And they moved the house enough so that they could get down into that cellar. And and they found that cement slab that you've mentioned. And so they, they somehow pried it up, thinking that their bodies were under the slab. But no, it was it was the blood that, the you know, with the people that they had killed had, had run underneath that slab. That was that horrible, horrible smell. And... Uh, but so then they knew something was really bad around there. And someone standing on the back of a wagon saw an indentation in the ground behind the house that looked like a grave. So they started to dig, and the very first body they found was Dr. York. So news of this quickly spreads, and while Colonel York isn't able to come personally, he sends his brother Ed to investigate. Yes, yes, and he identified his brother said, yep, that's him, and uh, and then they continued digging into all the other places back there where they saw the ground was, you know, indent- indentations in the ground, and they found, uh, they, that's when they found Mr. Longcore, and they found a little girl, 
she was had been thrown into the grave with him, just terrible. And uh, word spread of Kansas. The whole country was looking for the benders. Uh, and this is when the wagon, their wagon and their team, were found a few miles away where there was where the railroad came through, and and that's the town. And so they inquired, and the uh, man who was the ticket salesman there at the train station, he he said, yeah. Oh, about a week ago, there's people fitting your that description came through. They, an older couple, a younger couple, and they had an old, funny suitcase with them, and that was made of some type of material that was unusual. And then the horses and the wagon were found there, tied outside of town. Later, people said, "Yeah, there might have been blood on the wagon, and there might and, and all this. There, there could have been blood on that wagon." You know, blood is something that stains and stays forever. You can never wash it out. And some of the people that they killed, they killed in the winter, and they took bodies out and they dumped them in the uh, far away from the farm, but like in the down where the in the snow and where there was a creek or something frozen. And I'm suspecting that maybe the blood that was found on that back of that wagon may have been older because after the benders disappeared the benders had a, a full week's head start they got out of there right after colonel york and the posse you know came in and it was several days before the neighbors noticed the cattle in trouble then it was several days after that before all these people converged on the farm and when they found things so the benders had all these many days to get away to escape and and later, when the posses were riding, who claimed to have killed the benders or shot them and this kind of thing, I think some of that was just made up stories, and some of that, or they or some of these posses may very well have come across people traveling across the prairie out there, and maybe did something to them, thinking they were the benders. That, that part of it is really hard. You know, we'll never. Never really know for sure. Too many posse men, men who rode with the posse, said later in their old age that, oh, yeah, we killed old, well, the old man Bender and Mrs. Bender, and we threw them in the river and this kind of stuff. But I don't know if those were just stories, you know, that people, old men make up <laughs> <laughs> to intrigue listeners. There may very well have been someone killed, and the posse didn't really want to, you know, they wouldn't, weren't going to talk about it. But the Benders got away. They got away. They had too many days head start. How many people, again, were killed by the benders? I believe I've counted up to 11 all told. There were not, uh, eight, I believe, found there at the farm. And then there were other people that were found out in the prairie that were killed in, you know, the same fashion with the, the bodies that were found. Uh, one man was in the creek nearby, and there were several others that were found that had been dumped in the snow. They had killed them in the winter, you see. They would not have been able to dig dig graves behind the house. The ground would have been frozen. Because we're talking Kansas in the winter. So some of the people suggested that maybe they had dug the graves in the summer and covered them with boards and so that they would be there when, when they needed them during the cold weather. Um, but a lot of this is uh, guesswork, some people. Oh, getting back to, oh, uh, oh, okay, go ahead. Ask me, what next? I Sure. 
So this was a, a sensational story when it broke. It excited the citizens of Kansas and took them away a bit, I'm sure, from what was certainly for many the monotony of frontier yes, life. Yes, yes. There were all sorts of guesses by newspapers as to what had really happened to the Bender family and reports of sightings of them alive and news of their demise yes. from across the country. One story that I found pretty far-fetched was about the Benders and a hot air balloon. Yeah, there were these fantastic, um, oh, they're really kind of crazy, that they entertain people. There was a sea captain who said that uh, uh, this balloon landed on their ship, I think. Was it? Was that how that, and there was someone in there, uh, the, that's how the Benders, they tried to escape, that's how they escaped Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had, had built a hot air balloon on their farm and escaped to Mexico with it. Uh, but when they got to the Gulf of Mexico, I believe, the, the balloon was met by a storm, which sent it flying into the masts of a ship, and the benders basically tumbled out and died. Uh, yes, and this is another one of these you know stories that people people entertained each other and... and Oh, even, you know, we do that now, but you can imagine in the old days, that, that was something so sensational. It was all over the papers. Oh, Harper's was that very famous, you know, newspaper in that, in those days. And they sent artists to the farm when, when the story broke that the Benders, you know, family killed all these people who were on the farm. They, they had artists visit and to, to write about this and to, and to make sketches. Oh, and I and some of these are in my book, the copies, you know, of the sketches that were in the in the old time newspapers, uh, and and it, it shows what a huge crowd of people showed up that came in with their buggies and horses, and they were marching around. And some of these people did were able to recognize the bodies. You see, most most of the bodies were identified. I think there might have only been one eventually that they never could quite identify. It was a terrible thing, you know. These people were buried in, for a long time, and and to have someone identify that. But some, some one man was wearing, still wearing a, a, a small ring on his finger. Oh, and Henry Mackenzie, he had a tattoos from the military. He had an American flag tattooed on his arm, uh, and another I, I've forgotten now what something else. And that's how Leroy Dick was able to identify him positively. So speaking of Leroy Dick, he enters the story again about 10 years later when he's visited by a woman from Michigan who claimed that the washerwomen in her employ were Ma and Kate Bender. Can you talk a little bit about these women, the circumstances leading to their arrest, and how things ultimately resolved? Yes, there were two women who were very, you know, this story captivated the whole country. And there were people, I tried to put as many of these stories, kind of snippets, without getting into too much detail, because people were so intrigued with this that people, in, like for everywhere, they claimed to be Kate Bender. And Katie, like you said earlier, she seemed to be the most uh, interesting of all. But, you know, a beautiful, vivacious young woman is going to attract the attention more so than the than Mon Pa Bender would have. So people wondered, you know, and 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 I think individuals who might have been a little little loony were trying to get attention, and they and they claimed to be Katie Bender. They claimed one thing and another, and for years people were going out of Cherryvale to go and 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 uh, run down some of these leads 
where someone said that they thought they saw these two people living in a shack and they said they were the benders and and so the, these people, the, these these um, from law enforcement would go, and then they discovered it wasn't. These these people were just telling stories, or it was something silly, you know. And and you can see how that happened. In this day and age, we can find things out instantly with our technology. But in the old days, you know, how did you go to interview someone? You had to get on a horse and go ride up in the mountains someplace. There were no phones or Internet and, and television and all these things that work quickly for us now. So for years and years, there were all these funny stories about the benders, who found them and who didn't and, and all that kind of thing. But, it, you know, in the final analysis, in those days, in that time, no one knew really knew what happened to the benders. They 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 got away. I'd like to talk about this a little bit more, though. Um, the, the woman who visits Leroy Dick is, is panicked. Um, evidently, her husband had disappeared years before, and she was claiming that these two women employed by her that were admitting to being Ma and Katie Bender confessed to killing her husband, while the younger one, I believe, Katie, the one she claimed was Katie, was in a state of delirium while sick. Did I did I get that right? Yes, yes. It just it just snowballed. These two women were accused of being Ma and Katie Bender, and then they were brought from Michigan. It turned out that they were a couple of old con women. The older woman had been married, I don't know how many times, and had I don't know how many children, and the younger one too. They they didn't. Their personalities were nothing like Ma and Katie Bender. But people were just so insistent on finding out what happened to these benders, and these two women, to make the long, to make the yeah, long story short, they were brought back to Kansas and they were put on trial, and there, and then the locals were brought in to identify them to see if, if they recognized them or not. But you know, so many years had gone by, and the people, local people, they really didn't know the benders that well. You know, if you meet someone one time for a few minutes and then are asked to identify that person 10 or 12 years later, you can understand how you'd be, you, you really couldn't be that that accurate, I don't think. So people were saying, yeah, that's Katie, and some others said, nah, that's not her. And anyway, the wind-up was that the two women were let go. They they realized that the two of them were had always been in some kind of trouble, and the older one, during the Bender days, it turned out she had been in prison in Michigan for uh, committing abortion. They threw her in jail, I, I believe that was where she was. So she couldn't possibly be Ma Bender. She was in jail at the time. And the woman accused of being Kate Bender was actually far older than what the real Kate would have been. Yes, yes, and she was older, and, and she had a baby, I believe, with it, at that time, with her, and uh, she didn't look or act anything like Kate Bender either. But anyway, the two women they they were they were let go. They were the, the, the trial was over, and they realized that they didn't have the. And of course, Leroy Dick stuck to his story. He thought they were the Benders, but you know, he was the one who went to arrest them and to bring them back. So he had a certain responsibility because. The state of Kansas paid for the the arrest and the transportation and the trial and all that. It got to be quite an expensive situation for everybody, and it was just a hoax, really. And those two women were were not the benders. 
So what do you think really happened to the Bender family? Well, I have no idea what happened to Ma and Pa Bender. They they were trailed. Uh, uh, Colonel York hired some detectives, uh, and they tried to follow the trail, you know. And uh, I think the older couple wound up going to St. Louis, and then they just disappeared. The trail went cold. They were able to follow the, because the, they were on the train, and there were people who recognized them. But the two couples split up. Ma and Pa went one way, and John and Katie went another way. Um, oh, and getting back to Katie for just a moment, which I started earlier, uh, there is, I found a letter in the Kansas State Historical Society in Topeka in the Bender file. They've got quite a large uh, collection there. And there is a letter in the file uh, written by a neighbor lady who lived there in Cherryvale, and she said, in, in those days now, she wrote this letter back in those days, and she said that Katie had spent an overnight with her. And the two women were gossiping, like like uh, we always do. And Katie confessed to her that she and John were not brother and sister, that they were a married couple. So there's another clue uh, to, for, to me that that even in you know at that time. And also the neighbors said eh, they, she didn't look like the rest of the family, and so on. So I'm I am quite sure that Katie was the wife of John, not the sister. But in your book, you claim that Kate and Jim Bender survive, and they continue to use their real names in life. You even found their their names on grave markers buried right next to Doc Holliday in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And you think she became a very successful businesswoman in later life and had probably used the stolen money to fund what would become a small business empire. Yes. Well, I'm not going to give the rest of my story away. <laughs> I my my book was written and published and at the end of it I said I didn't I did not know what happened. I mean, no one knew what happened to the Benders. They got away. Um and then after my book was the, the hardcover edition was was uh, released and a lady came here to uh, bought a, bought a, one of the books in the bookstore here in town, and she got back to me, and she said, "You know, I I know where John and Katie are buried," and I and I thought, "Oh, oh yeah, right. You know, they, these people have been missing for a long. It's been a big mystery." Anyway, she sent me the information of where she thought that they, where she found, she found the graves of a John and Katie Bender. She did. And she sent me some pictures, and she gave me information of the town and the cemetery and the whole thing. And then I then did the research. I contacted the local historical society where the where the graves are located, and I got all kinds of information about Katie and John Bender that are buried there. And and then went through some census records and all sorts of things. And I I put all this in a chapter and afterward. And when my book was then published in the second edition, which is the paperback edition, published by Silk Label Books, we put a afterword in in the paperback edition, giving all of my information that I could come up with, um, giving my opinion as to what I felt uh, is is really right, and that is that the two vendors. The two were a married couple. They got away uh, about five years after the murders and things settled down. 
they they traveled out here they came out west and they and I have all that story that I was able to trail them and they are buried here in the west and and uh it's it's a very very interesting story and I I couldn't find anything that would show that that was not those two they looked the same as the description of the of the benders of Kansas the, the John and Katie and everything about them and and John John Bender was a blacksmith the the, the John that that died that, whose grave we found and there were three blacksmith hammers found under the stove in Kansas that were used to to kill people with so there were just all those clues after clue after clue and uh, I put that in my afterward chapter in the in the uh, death for dinner book the, the paperback edition so for people interested in your book where where can they go well they can um, go directly to the publisher the, his website is silk label books that's in one word silk label books dot com and he has his website there it can be ordered from them that way or a telephone call and there and my other books are there too if you go to silk label books uh and ask for my name de la garza phyllis and then the, and then the list of books come up that they have published of mine the bender death for dinner the benders of old kansas is is there along with the number of my other books that they have published and contacting you would be difficult you're Kind of living off the grid in Arizona, aren't you? Yes. Which is a nice way to live, right? Well, if anybody wants, I can't get away with anything because you, if you put my name in search on the internet, you know, you know how that is. Some pages come up with uh, all kinds of information about me and my books and all that kind of thing. Well, it's the age of information. There's plenty of stuff about all of us out there. Yes. Well, two of my books are available uh, electronically. But uh, by going to Amazon, well, all, all my books are at Amazon too. Um, you know, you go to Amazon and and books author and put my name in, and then a whole big page comes up with all all of my books. If someone wants the Bender a Death for Dinner, and you're interested in what happened to John and Katie, you you be sure to get the paperback edition because the hardcover edition I was was published before I did, found out what what happened to John and Katie. Thank you again for your time. You've been great. Well, I thank you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. Please, 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 if you haven't done so already, leave a rating review for me on iTunes. And again, like my Most Notorious page on Facebook if you want to get those live feeds at the end of June and the beginning of July. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.